Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. The United States is a large country, ranking in at fourth for landmass and third in population. Yet, just over 200 years ago, the newly independent America was a group of relatively small colonies situated along the Atlantic. So how exactly did the United States expand so quickly and effectively to dominate the continent of North America? My guest Paul McGowan and I will be discussing just that. Let's begin. This is HI101. I'm here with Paul McGowan. Howdy. How's it going, Paul? It's going good. I'm excited. That's good. I'm glad. Uh, And we're going to talk about American expansion today. So, Yeah, I I don't know very much about American history, and and I picked up a book about uh, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson that I'm not even close to finished, (laughs) but I know... I, I started. I started reading, and I know that they started with the thirteen colonies, and 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 then I was like, "There's a huge landmass that they had to occupy," and they decided to do that with a bunch more states than, say, Canada, with you know four provinces spanning the original colonies and then the West. So I thought I thought it'd be cool to to learn more about how how America filled out. So we're essentially talking. There's. 13 colonies on the on the Atlantic coast dot 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 US today. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's fair enough. Probably a very broad topic. It's a huge topic. So we're going to have to be a little bit selective about some of the things that we talk about. Okay. But uh, that's okay. We're going to hammer through and try and get a little bit broader look at exactly what's going on here. Uh, and it is interesting stuff. I think if we had come up through school in the states you would probably have a very well. You would at least have had an opportunity to learn about all this stuff. It's it, they they take their history very seriously. There in I am general, sure that they do. And you would have learned all of the stuff we're about to talk about today. But that's okay. Not everybody did, so it doesn't hurt to go over it a little bit. Yeah. There's a couple of things that I want to talk about just before we really get into the get right into it. Namely, what makes the United States special? Okay. Which. Just bear with me. We're going somewhere with this. Because the thing is, it, I mean, it's its really easy to be cynical about America these days. They're, they're an incredible country. The place that they came from just in their history is actually very unique. And it really ties into the way that it grew from the 13 colonies into the entire continental U.S. The biggest thing that differentiates them from other countries is that they were the first new country right right in that before this when you're taking a very eurocentric view of things you had these kingdoms that could kind of trace their lineage back to the romans and you know if not the romans then various tribes that were against the romans at some point in time sometimes further back than that Mm -hmm. but you have this long long history and there was this idea that that certain things had gone wrong over okay. the course of their history. They've had long enough to kind of mess things up. With the United States, with the colonies, and the thing about colonies, by the way, is that you have to remember colonies aren't really started with the intention of them spinning off into new countries. That was my next question. Okay, awesome. Good to know I'm anticipating a little bit. Colonies are there in, entirely for economic exploitation. Okay. The idea is that colonies provide a cheap source of 
raw materials, and they provide a market for your finished goods. Okay. That's generally how European colonialism works. That's, again, a very broad look at things, but it helps to have citizens that aren't actually full citizens doing a lot of hard work to get you materials that you can then turn into something that you can sell back to them at a high price. And and Britain at the time just thought that they would take that? That's, that's well, I mean, they, they started that. That's what the 13 colonies were. They were British colonies. Wow. And so was Canada, by the yeah. way. All of the Canadian colonies were, were the same thing. So was uh, New France before it, when France owned almost the entirety of North America. Yeah. Same with Spain down in the south. You have to remember that at this point, Spain was still a really major power on the continent. They owned basically all of what is now Texas, California, New Mexico, Nevada, down into Mexico, as well as the majority of South America. They were exploiting it like crazy. Okay, so maybe this question is too is too broad. But so when Britain and when France established colonies, especially in North America, did they did they did they never anticipate like a, a movement like a, a a push to try to form a country? Not at all. It's entirely as I said. Basically, that 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 market setup that I'm talking about. You know, cheap. Cheap raw materials and a market for finished goods. It's so beneficial to the the mother country yeah. that the only reason you would ever have to want to get rid of a colony in that particular setup is if it's no longer economically viable to keep it under that arrangement. Right. Because once it stops making you a lot of money, then what's the point of having it anyways? But I guess, I guess, but they always assumed that the colonies would just be un, unfailingly loyal? More or less. These were British subjects that were living there. Maybe they didn't have the full rights that British subjects living at home would have. Mm-hmm. But they were British subjects and they were expected to be loyal. I mean, when the Revolutionary War began, that was, that was treason. Yeah. Like, we, we need to be really clear about what a revolution actually is. It's, it's rebelling against your government. It is full-on treason. It is no different than... I, I, I mean, if you put it in today's terms, it's no different than a bunch of, you know, a bunch of people grabbing weapons and, and, you know, starting to kill politicians and starting to kill soldiers and demanding to be left alone. You know, of course they're not going to let that stand. That's a crime. Right. And it was a crime then. The thing that made the colonies different and the thing that made it possible for them to establish this independence is the distance i mean that's a real Mm -hmm. it's it's a huge simplification but essentially it was the source of all of the problems and it was the source of the solution for the the colonists as well in that they weren't getting representation in british parliament right that that was the main complaint of american colonists was representation or taxation without representation i don't know if you've ever heard that yeah that phrase so basically they're saying okay you can't you can't put more taxes on us if we don't have someone in Parliament advocating for us that we have voted into Parliament. Because they didn't. There's, they're not technically represented in British Parliament. Mm-hmm. The fact that they were so far away meant that it took a long time for uh, communication to go back and forth. And it was just geographically far enough removed that it was easy to kind of get a, a revolutionary movement started without it being suppressed almost immediately by British troops. Right. So we're going to try not to get too much into the Revolutionary War today because that's a huge topic in and of itself. Yeah. But the thing to know about the Revolution is that it was an incredibly intellectual one. And it was at a time where there were a lot of ideas flying around about what sort of rights a person has rather than just what relationship a person has to their, uh, their rulers. So that's what the Enlightenment was all about, was sort of individualism, right? Self-determination. And these colonies basically wanted the right to determine their own course. And that was the the fundamental issue of the revolution, was was self-determination. Now, the ideals that it's founded on are guys like Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, guys who are talking about the ideal forms of government guys talking about what the natural state of man is mm-hmm. um, to use their words and it's it's th- there's all this conversation about listen 
just because every single country in Europe is ruled by a king and is more or less a feudal system doesn't mean that that's the way people have to be, right? There's nothing inherent to those systems that make it a requisite for human civilization. Mm -hmm. There are other ways that we could look at doing this. They started looking to the example of the Greeks, for example, who had true democracies where anyone, anyone with citizenship could directly participate in, in political decisions. Obviously not really useful beyond a very small scale, but they're kind of going, well, it worked well enough for the Athenians. Why can't we have something like that? Sure. I mean, have you ever have you ever read the uh, the Declaration of Independence? I've read parts of it. A big part of the book that I was reading goes over Thomas Jefferson drafting it. It's an incredible story. I mean, he did it in a couple of days, basically. Yeah. It is. It's not that long. It is well worth the read. It's actually a very very well written document. And to to be honest, for a piece of legislation essentially is actually somewhat moving. It's, it's, I mean, the, the, the opening lines, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It resonates with people for a reason. It's yeah. basically saying you don't have to take this from these people who are telling you that they're better than you, right? You have just as much a shot in life as every single person around you. This was for excuse the pun, it was a revolutionary idea that that they could actually set up a republic that everyone had an equal say in. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's exceptional about America is ignoring, and, and this, is, this is a big caveat, but ignoring all the indigenous people already living in North America, it was seen by the European settlers as essentially empty. Right. They saw it as a fresh start. If you wanted to go off on your own, if you basically wanted to take your ball and go home, but you lived in Britain, there's nowhere really to go, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's all taken up already. Everyone's claimed their piece of Britain. It's all sort of spoken for. In North America, there's these, these huge open expanses where there, there doesn't seem like there are any people, you know, using it in any way. It looks like it's free for the taking. And people are looking at this going, this is a chance for a fresh start, like an actual true fresh start to build a society from the ground up. Let's take all of the mistakes that we've made in the past. Let's look at our history. Let's look at our common heritage and let's just skirt around all of those issues that have caused so many problems in our society. Now, a lot of these people that are coming initially to the 13 colonies are uh, well, what, what they call pilgr pilgrims colloquially, you know, Puritans that have been ejected from Britain because of their, their religious beliefs. Sure. There was a sermon in 1630 by a man named uh, John Winthrop uh, in what would become Boston, right? So in the okay. Massachusetts colony. It's, it's known as the City Upon a Hill sermon. Basically, he said, and he was referencing, he was referencing the Sermon on the Mount from, from, uh, from the gospel basically saying that America has this chance to stand as an example to the entire world. The rest of the world, they've messed it up. We have a chance to show them what a truly good society looks like. Now, the idea of a good society is fairly subjective. There's a lot of, there's a lot of room for debate there. Yeah. But this idea really stuck with them that because America has this special chance that they have, they also have a special responsibility not to mess it up. Sure. They've got all of this experience with none of the baggage and they feel like that gives them so much of a head start that they, they can't they can't in good conscience ruin that because well they, 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 they've been given a fresh start and you know it's their responsibility to see it through well. Yeah. For a lot of and, and because of so many of these people were religious pilgrims, they saw it as like a divine license to begin a better society they saw it as god giving them the chance to actually make a good country on earth huh. there's a lot of bag like there's a lot of weight that goes along with that that's a lot of pressure it's a lot of pressure in 1776 so just when the revolution's getting ready a guy named thomas Paine, you may have heard of him <laughs> he was a uh, he was a, an enlightenment scholar wrote a book called common sense and it was basically about the ideal form of government 
Okay. It was a speci- specifically referencing the United States. And what he said was, you know, sort of a similar thing that this is the only shot we are going to have at making a real, like a, a real fresh start. So even even later on, when you get the, the French Revolution in 1789, which which happens after the founding of America, which kind of gives you an idea of when the U.S. was founded. I mean, you still have an, a monarch in France. Like it's a very, it's it's definitely not medieval, but it's got a lot of the medieval baggage still in Europe that. We're talking about courts with the frilly wigs and the, like the whole nine yards. Yeah, yeah. When I read about, when I was reading about Thomas Jefferson being in France at the time of, of the French Revolution, I, I was like, I, yeah, I didn't know that those that those kind of periods in time coincided. Yeah, and there's definitely some overlap between the two. But again, we're yeah. going to stay out of a lot of that stuff today. But the idea is that even with the French Revolution, which was seen as a complete overhaul of sort of these old world ideas... They were looking to what they were doing over the, in the United States with their sort of brand new country, how they're setting them up, what ideas they're holding is more important or less important, things like that. Mm-hmm. They were serving it as, as an example to all of this change in Europe. This brings us to a, com, uh, a concept called American exceptionalism. It wasn't really called this until much later, but it's sort of this idea that because of their unique history, the United States is exempt from all of these potential downfalls, that they are qualitatively better than other countries. And when you sort of hear that statement out of context, it sounds incredibly arrogant. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, you know, if, 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 you, if you tend that way, you sort of feel like it's a very typical, like an American way to look at the world. It's because of this. It's because they actually were special. It's because they actually had a unique chance in history to do something really interesting, potentially really great. Yeah. There's a lot of responsibility that goes along with that. And when stakes are that high, I mean, sometimes the pressure gets pretty high as well. And when you set yourself up that high, people are also going to be a lot more critical of you. Sure. If you, if you, if you have said that the United States is God's beacon of light to the rest of the world... You know, and they and they mess something up. People are going to be really quick to point it out. So that's the United States that we're dealing with. That's the place that we're starting with when we're talking about the expansion of the United States. And I bring all of this up because it's really important to remember that this was on people's minds, and not just the you know sort of the academic elites, not just the the intellectuals, not just the politicians, but even regular people were aware of this sort of side of exceptionalism in. U.S. history. They were aware that something really interesting and unprecedented was going on with their country, and they felt a lot of pressure not to mess this up. So that's the U.S. that we're going to be talking about today. The war took a little while, the Revolutionary War, and basically ended in 1783 with the Treaty of Paris, or one of many treaties of Paris. Man, you have no idea how many treaties of Paris there are. (laughs) So many many Paris treaties. (laughs) In the 1783 Paris Treaty ended the war between Britain and United States, basically more or less recognized the United States as a sovereign nation. Okay. And they were really busy fighting all of this war and weren't quite, like while they were writing up all of these, you know, articles of confederation and the, the, uh, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. While they're writing all of these things up, they tend to be a lot more conceptual than actually practical. Mm-hmm. So it's 1783 that they actually define the borders of the first states. This country is so empty at this point that there isn't really need for solid lines in a lot of cases. Okay. It's kind of like there are these major pockets and, and somewhere in between them there's a border and we'll just call it good there. Yeah. I mean, these are all coming out of single colonies, like single like villages that began as colonies and they kind of spread out from there. A number of these colonies were given what were called sea-to-sea mandates by the British government when they were founded as colonies. Okay. Basically, they said, okay, you've got this much coast and then from there just over, all the way, all the way over. Is, is yours. It's all yours. Okay. These, these were very impractical, <laughs> difficult to enforce, but that's what they were working with, C2C mandates. Now, they realize that practically they can't really lay claim to all of that, and besides the fact some of those colonies didn't have the C2C mandate, they felt it was kind of 
unfair to just start out with a number of them with C2C mandates and go from there. You just have these bands across the continent. And they didn't end up even looking really... a lot like the flag. <laughs> exactly. And they didn't really know what was West. Yeah. They, they just didn't know. People hadn't explored that far in the, in the late 18th century. There had been a number of... I mean, there, there were people who had crossed uh, the continent, but they tended to be fur traders. They tended to be close with different native bands that would actually show them the routes. They didn't tend to be the sort of people who were doing official government surveying. They decided to set the Mississippi River as the hard border. Okay. Okay. So everything from the seaboard to the Mississippi River, that is the United States. It goes as far south as the Gulf of Mexico, except for Spanish Florida. Florida was still under the control of Spain. Okay. So there's this this peninsula of, of Spanish-controlled territory there. As far west as the Mississippi. And then along the Mississippi, as far north as the Lake of, uh, the Lake of Woods, which... Today, more or less, sits on the border between Manitoba and Ontario. Okay. So just west of Lake Superior. So that far north. And that was the U.S. The colonies that had C2C mandates, they basically sold those to the federal government in exchange for... During the Revolutionary War, they had promised everyone... Like, all the states had promised funds to support the army. Right. Those funds were not very quickly forthcoming. So basically, they traded those debts to the federal government in exchange for giving up their C2C mandates. Oh, okay. Okay? So there was a big chunk of land that was sort of the the northwest chunk of this territory, sort of uh, Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, all up in there, that wasn't actually a state. It It was what's known as unorganized territory. So unorganized territory means that it's under direct control of the federal government. The way that the U.S. is kind of set up constitutionally is that the federal government isn't really supposed to be that strong. Right. Generally, things are supposed to be dealt with on a state-by-state basis. As long as a state abides by constitutional law, they can basically do whatever they want to a point. I mean, obviously, there are certain federal laws and the federal government has gotten stronger over the years. But at this point, it was definitely supposed to be a very loose federation of mostly independent states kind of working together under the framework of the federal government. Right. So this this unorganized territory was under direct control. And basically the reason for that was no one was living there. They didn't have the people that are required to make up a functioning state. The requirement for a state is basically that you have a Republican form of government within the state. So that just means, you know, people vote. It's a democracy. Yeah. Most states choose to follow the federal model where you have the two houses right like the and the and the um the three sectors of government so the legislative executive judicial right yeah very similar to canada set up the thing is yeah there, there there weren't enough people in the organized territories they just couldn't make that work so that ended up being kind of wild territory they just sort of left that alone for the time being they decided that you needed a minimum of forty thousand people to make a state okay basically And we're going to be skipping across this a lot later, so we'll talk about it now. Under Article 4 of the Constitution, what you need to do to become a state is you need to take a territory, make it an organized territory, which basically means subject it to the laws of the U.S. Constitution, so make sure everything is following the U.S. Constitution, Mm -hmm. have 40,000 people, have those 40,000 people hold a referendum, so saying that they want to join the United States, they want to become a state, and then Congress has to admit them to the Union pretty straightforward so what we're going to see going forward is all of these territories they'll have concentrations of people settling in one area they'll decide that they have enough people to portion it off to become a state so they have more than the forty thousand people cut off they'll draw borders they'll make it into a state and now that's a state and the the unorganized territory kind of gets pushed back okay does that make sense yes so when you have an organized territory that's similar to what we've got in canada with Northwest Territories, Nunavut, Yukon, where while they're not full provinces, they still like they live under Canadian law. What they had with the unorganized territories was more like what you had way back with Canada with the, the Hudson's Bay Territory yeah. or the Northwest Territory, where it's just wilderness and anything goes. Technically subject to some federal laws, but 
it's, but who's going to enforce them? It, essentially, yeah. It's, it's wilderness. There's nothing going on there. That was all well and good for some time until 1803. Okay, I have a quick, quick question about sure. forming states. So when you say they, they, they drew borders, they decided, a, you know, a group would decide that they had the requisite 40,000 people, hmm. and they decided to draw borders, were you allowed, were states allowed to basically draw their own borders in accordance with existing borders, or was the federal government in charge of actually drawing the borders? At this point in time, it tended to be collaboration between the two. Okay. So the, the federal government would sort of help portion off like they would, they would take one enormous unorganized territory and sort of portion it down to three or four more manageable ones, and then people would go to Congress with a proposal to make a state in, you know, in, in this area, and they would have lines drawn on a map, and they'd say, yeah, that looks pretty good. And as long as it's not, there's there's one other thing that I, I neglected to mention, which is that it can't take up any room from any other state, so you can't that just take over part of another state. <laughs> And it has to be currently federal land, so it has to belong to the United States. Okay. Was was Spain the only other country with with a land claim in what is currently the United States? Uh, yes, at this point okay. in time. Basically, from 1783 until 1803, this little bit of land kind of got portioned off in different ways, and they sort of very calmly made new states out of it and things like that. But uh, in 1800... Napoleon came to North America. He claimed a whole bunch of land from Spain and then promptly decided he didn't need it anymore. I did not know any of that. And that changed everything for the United States in terms of landmass. But we will come right back to that right after this break. This is HI101. I'm here with Paul McGowan. Hi again. Hi, Paul. We were just talking about Napoleon in North America. Oh, that guy. Napoleon's an interesting guy. There's there's too much stuff to get into with that guy. He he, man, the number of accomplishments in his life, <laughs> the amount that he gained and then lost, is just fascinating. But again, a different a different podcast. There's this piece of land called the Louisiana Territory. Okay. Basically, the Louisiana Territory is all of the land between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. All of it, all north of it. to south. As far north as just across the border uh, of Canada currently. Okay. It's it's massive. Okay, it's it's huge. It's over 2 million square kilometers. That's a lot of square kilometers. It's a lot of square kilometers. Napoleon had taken this land in 1800 from Spain, but did it in kind of like a sneaky, more political way than like landing a bunch of armies. Okay. He had Spain itself in a bit of a chokehold in, in Europe, and there was some backdoor trading and things like that. He ended up with this, this, this whole piece of land. And the Louisiana Purchase, or the Louisiana Territory, sorry, it's really wide near the top where the Mississippi and the, the Rockies are far apart. Yeah. At the bottom, it comes relatively close together. Where the, where the Rockies kind of trail off, it sort of follows the top border of Texas. Right. Um, okay. Down to the Gulf of Mexico. There's a little piece of... And, and now, you'll remember that the, the 13 colonies had been extended out to the, to the Mississippi River. They didn't go all the way south because of Spanish Florida. Right. The port of New Orleans was technically not under U.S. control. The thing is that something like three-eighths of all trade from the United States went out through New Orleans. Okay? Very key port for them economically. Because of tensions between Napoleon and, or between France and Britain, I should say, in, in Europe, you started seeing some economic tensions in terms of trade through a French-controlled city when the U.S. was more or less pro-British at this point. Right. Not, not entirely so, but more than it was pro-French. So Napoleon came upon all of this territory. He was going to do a bunch of stuff with it. The problem was that in that shortly after he made the purchase, there was a massive slave uprising in Haiti, which was also a French territory. And the thing is, Haiti was his staging ground for everything else in North America. Okay. 
right? It's, it's in the Caribbean. You kind of sail down into the Caribbean. You'll refuel in Haiti. You'll take on fresh water. You'll take on food. You'll continue on your way up to North America. Sure. The uprising in Haiti is actually the only successful slave uprising in the Americas. It's a really interesting topic as well. Problem was he got so bogged down in dealing with the Haitian problem that once he finally lost Haiti, he basically lost any use for this big chunk of land that he couldn't even really get to anymore. Right. And besides, things were really starting to heat up in Europe with other countries getting really sick of Napoleon's nonsense. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, he's got these two million kilometers of land that he's looking at as essentially worthless to him. He feels like if he had the time and he had the resources, he could develop it. He could make a really strong North American territory or colony for France again. But it's not going so great. Because of New Orleans' importance, there were two diplomats dispatched to France in 1802, James Monroe and Robert Livingston. They went to Paris planning to purchase New Orleans from Napoleon. That's, that's what they wanted. They just wanted New Orleans. They just wanted that access to the Gulf of Mexico. It would really help them out. It would secure their, their economic position. They were there for New Orleans. That's, that's it. Now, this was contentious because it didn't really say anywhere in the Constitution that it was okay for the U.S. to purchase territory in order to expand. It didn't say it wasn't okay. But you have to remember that we're talking about you know, 30 years after the Revolutionary War. Like, it's really, really soon. All the people who made this, all of these legal documents are still around. Sure. Jefferson is president at this point in time. He's, he's got a thing or two to say about what it means to be America. And he was really torn on this. And so does this play into American exceptionalism? Them feeling like purchasing land somehow degrades the country? Or... The thing that they're worried about is that they saw expansionism as an imperialist tendency. And the, okay. and the U.S., being a former colony, adamantly saw itself as anti-imperialist. That makes sense. Okay. So there are people arguing on one side saying that we're just trying to get this port so that we've got... Like, it's one port. Like, what's, what's the harm in this, basically? Yeah. And there are other people saying, this isn't how America is supposed to work. We, as a society, want to be such an example to the world that the world will come to us and ask to become part of us, and we will let them and everyone will be happy. This is a major thing that comes up throughout U.S. history. There is major tension between the ideals of the United States and sort of the practical realities of everyday life. If you are a firm idealist, purchasing the city makes no sense. What you should want is for New Orleans to be like, I'm sick of France. This Napoleon guy is just the worst. Hey, United States, we've just held a referendum. Remember, part of right. Article 4 of the Constitution. We've just held this referendum and we have decided as a political body that we would like to join the United States. And, cons and Congress would say... Yes, you can be part of the United States. They are, they're, they're made a state of the United States and everyone's happy and their lives are better for it, etc., etc. Okay. Okay. So Monroe and Livingston went, <laughs> they, they went to France expecting to pay $10 million for the city of New Orleans. Some land around it, be able to get to it. $10 million in, in, in American dollars at that point in time. Now, it was, it was a little bit tricky because even though Napoleon had kind of de facto taken control of the Louisiana, or the Louisiana Territory, it wasn't officially ceded to them by Spain until about three weeks before this purchase. So it was really, really, like, to this day, historians are arguing over the legalities of this transaction. It's, yeah. it's insane. They got there expecting to pay $10 million for, for New Orleans. They were offered the entire Louisiana Territory for 15. Seems like a good deal. At the time, that was four cents an acre. It's a very good deal. They paid, in, in, two, in I, I looked it up, in 2013 dollars, they paid $236 million for over 2 million square kilometers of territory. 
like again between the Rockies and the Mississippi, all of that they paid two hundred and thirty-six million dollars in today's funds. Dang, that's forty-seven cents an acre now. So, so France, France just wanted to get rid of it. They were cashing out. Okay. They expected to lose it at any point in time, anyways. They figured they might as well get something for it. So all of a sudden, the U.S. has all of this new territory on its hands, and it's it's doubled in size, more than doubled in size overnight. The treaty to sell the Louisiana territory wasn't approved for another month because basically, they were these two diplomats, Monroe and Livingston, were offered the Louisiana territory, and basically said, "Yep, we'll we'll take it," hoping that it would go over okay at home. Yeah. So Jefferson didn't even know this was coming. He was dealing with enough of a, <laughs> a, a, a crisis of conscience over just the city of New Orleans. Yeah. Imagine how he took to the entire Louisiana Purchase. Poor Jefferson. There's also a darker side to this, which is that portions of the Louisiana Purchase contained Spanish settlers. Okay. There were discussions at that point in time about incorporating foreigners I'm using air quotes, into the United States. There was rhetoric about how the United States was, I mean, not to, not to sugarcoat it, how the United States was a white country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, should we, be, should we be bringing people who aren't white into this country? As much as I don't love talking about it, you can't talk about U.S. history without getting into race issues. So here we are. That was, that was a major thing that people were talking about. And that kind of shows a little bit of the hypocrisy in the Republican ideals of the early United States. I, well, of, of the United States for a lot of its history, to be honest. Is that how can you say that all men are created equal and still hold slaves or even treat people of other races as second-class citizens? Obviously, that directly contradicts and... The people framing the Constitution were well aware of this, and they were hoping that it would work itself out one day when people were more ready to work it out. Mm-hmm. One podcast I was listening to one time by a guy called uh, Mike Duncan, he was talking about the Revolutionary War and basically said that had they abolished slavery at the founding of the United States, it would be the single greatest thing that mankind had ever done. Because at that point in time, they would actually have been able to live up to the city on the hill. Yeah. They would have actually been this beacon of freedom and equality and individualism that they claim to be. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's one of the the super interesting parts of this book is is listening while well, reading about how how Jefferson and Madison and and the other people who crafted the Declaration of Independence and and who were involved in in founding the country how they negotiated holding holding slaves, but yeah, also aspiring to that higher ideal. Yeah. They they knew they, they absolutely knew. There was, no, there was no doubt in their minds that what they were doing was a half measure. But what's done is done, and that's kind of how we, uh, how we have to move on with talking about their history. I mean, it ends up playing a big part into this expansion. So, obviously, the Louisiana Purchase was agreed to. It was ratified. The Purchase went through. They sent their $15 million off to, to Napoleon. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. So how, how did Jefferson feel about it when he found out that, that they had purchased the entire, that entire swath of land? Once, from what I can tell, once it was done, I mean, he sort of got into the practicality of what do we do with this land. I doubt that if Jefferson had been at the bargaining table that he would have agreed to the purchase. Hmm. But I feel like once he had made that decision, or... Sorry, once his delegates had made that decision, he was willing to sort of deal with the fact that he now had all of this territory. Because it did also solve some problems for them. There's sort of always been this idea in the American mentality that they need to expand, that they need to spread because they come from such an intellectual foundation that they want to spread in physical space as much as they want to spread their ideas. And People in general, while there were certain people that had reservations about the Louisiana Purchase just as a, as a population, there were plenty of other people that saw this as an opportunity. There's good farmland that's being opened up to us. Perfect. That means we can grow population-wise. That means we can spread out. That means we can 
spread civilization in like the most concrete sort of practical way possible. Sure. Which is, you know, in this case, kind of taming the land. This, this idea of the frontier is big in the American psyche at this point in time as well. This idea that, you know, there is, there is wilderness out there and it needs to be tamed and it will be better for it. Okay. Right? So in 1803, uh, you've heard of the Lewis and Clark expedition? Yes. That was sent out in 1803 basically because Jefferson went, okay, so what did we just buy? Right. <laughs> they followed the course of the Missouri River and once they got to the end of that... Even beyond the uh, the Louisiana Purchase, they were given the mandate to kind of just keep going a little bit further, get to the Pacific, see what you can see, figure out what actually this continent is, like figure out what it's made up of. I want yeah. to know a little bit more about it. Very much like a fact-finding mission. And a surprisingly peaceful one, actually. If you ever look into it, there was only one shot fired in anger the entire time they proceeded. How big of an expedition was it? Uh, I'll have to look up that number and get back. I'm, yeah, okay. it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a large number of people. It would be this is a guess, but I'm going to say about fifty. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't huge. It was definitely exploratory, not uh, not a sort of a military march or something like that. They were former military, but they were just chosen as the best people to explore this stuff for their their specific skills. What they found was that you know beyond the Rockies. Relatively speaking, in comparison to the rest of the continent, there's not that much further until you get to the Pacific. Now, it's still a really long ways. Yeah. But they sort of felt like they were almost there. And at this point in time, the United States was sort of getting used to this idea of, of spreading out a little bit. And, and we're talking about like the decade after the Louisiana Purchase. There's people spreading out. They're, exp- they're exploring the, the territory, seeing what North America has to offer. And this sort of, there's this sort of growing sentiment that... And, and, and part of it is because the Louisiana Purchase basically fell into their laps, that the U.S. is destined to just eventually take up all of the continent. Possibly even the uh, South America. Who knows? It just feels like it's all coming together. Right. In around this time, there was the War of 1812. Again, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that one. The more you look into the War of 1812, the muddier it gets, just in terms of causes, in terms of expected outcomes, like what exactly was going on there. A lot of it had to do with Britain being under a lot of stress due to the Napoleonic Wars. They started doing really dumb things like anyone they found on a ship from the colonies. They would claim were British subjects that had defected somehow and they were taking them back for the navy because they were so starved for personnel wow there was also i mean there was also this idea that like you know canada hadn't joined in the revolution maybe we should get canada in here like there's a lot of people that will say that like yeah they straight up just wanted to take canadian lands they wanted them as part of the united states yeah there are other people who said that like there's a more nuanced idea of that, that they were aiming to sort of free them from British oppression, things like that. It, it's, it gets murky. Point is, they weren't able to take Canada. They were driven back by British forces. Not a lot came of it in terms of territory change. But, I mean, it, it is worth noting that it happened. And it sort of established in many ways that, you know, while while if you kind of run the numbers, the U.S. did not really win that conflict. They were also able to hold their own again against Britain. And this is the first time they had gone up against them since the Revolutionary War. Right. And this time, without the aid of France, which they had had during the Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. sort of proved themselves a little bit as a as a nation in that they're able to sort of protect their, their homelands. They're able to establish a sphere of influence and, and hold to that. They didn't lose any land either. So, in... 1818, there was a treaty between, and this is partially fallout from the war, which ended in 1815, but not not directly. It was more like, let's patch things up a little bit. In 1818, they established the 49th parallel as the border between Rupert's Land and the United States. Okay. The top of the Louisiana Purchase was really ill-defined. As I was saying earlier, it kind of creeps up into what are now the, the prairie provinces of Canada. And there was some Rupert's Land that was dipping down below the 49th parallel, just west of uh, Lake of the Woods again, so they basically said, "Okay, we'll take a we'll take a straight line, draw it across the 49th parallel, all the way to the Rocky Mountains, and that line below, that's the United States. That line above, that's Rupert's Land, and that's a border that's held ever since." Mm-hmm. 
around this time, the Oregon country was claimed by the United States. It was also claimed by Great Britain and France and Russia and Spain. <laughs> the Oregon country is basically more or less, it's west of the Rocky Mountains. It's like the bottom half of British Columbia down to the top of current day California, approximately. Okay. So it's just this big chunk of land. Cool. I was going to ask about, about land claims on the west side of the continent. So that's... The Pacific Ocean is a lot bigger than the Atlantic. There isn't a lot of traffic back and forth across the Pacific. Mm. It, it happens from time to time, but it's not nearly as critical as ports on the eastern seaboard. They're starting to recognize the value of the west coast. And there is sort of that, that mandate's kind of always stuck in their head of from sea to sea. And they're going, well, if we're actually going to be from sea to sea... We got to put something on that other sea. <laughs> That's the way you do that. So Britain is trying to establish British Columbia. Uh, the United States is trying to establish Oregon. There is There are Russian claims all along the coast of, okay. of North America. Basically, ship, uh, fishing vessels have been setting up outposts all along. And Spain is kind of creeping up from the bottom. I mean, they already own basically what's California. They're kind of creeping up from there. Sure. So France tried getting in on that game for a while. It didn't really stick. So we don't need to worry about them too, too much. And this was kind of getting a little bit muddy. But the thing is, there was barely any people there. So it was largely conceptual, largely political. Didn't fundamentally matter who was saying that they owned it. This all kind of changed when two things happened really quickly. In 1819, Spain withdrew their claim down to the 42nd parallel. That is the current northern border of California. Okay. Russia withdrew to uh, what's called what's called 5440. That's where the band came from. Yes, I can see the look <laughs> on your face. 54 degrees, 40 hours north. Okay. That's basically the bottom of Alaska. Like, you know how Alaska comes down in a strip along the coast? Yeah. That's 5440. Okay. Which basically meant that the only people with claims to this Oregon country are Great Britain and the United States. The way that the U.S. decides to deal with this is that in 1843, they just start throwing settlers at the area. You've heard of the Oregon Trail? Yes. This is what the Oregon Trail was. (laughs) They started basically paying people to settle in the Oregon country. Basically, they figured... Nobody's living there. Whoever can get a bunch of people there first has the stronger claim on actually claiming it as their own territory. For sure. Which is reasonable. Yeah. So you get this exodus of people heading out west to the Oregon country. It's a lot of propaganda about how great it is. But this all kind of ties into this sort of frontier spirit that the U.S. has going on of we need to just kind of spread all across the continent. We need to take all of this over. This should all be ours because we're good enough as a society that we are that that it's reasonable for us to take up all of this room we deserve to be this big Mm -hmm. because anything that we take it's going to be the best and so that's you know it just it justifies this idea of of spreading out because you're helping anyone that you kind of are like anyone that you cut out if you were standing on one point and there was Spain on one side and the U.S. on the other, you'd want U.S. to come across and you end up in the U.S. because that would be better than ending up in Spain. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how they're justifying it to themselves. So they paid people to, to go out to Oregon. Did mm-hmm. they do that elsewhere or did they just kind of assume that people would naturally push westward from the 13 colonies? There were federal grants to go settle in the okay. in Louisiana Territory, usually a small piece of land i mean you get those sort of you'll hear stories about there's like a morning where like they 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 like there's a guy standing there with a flag and a bunch of settlers yeah and he'll like look at his watch and like at 8 a.m he'll wave the flag and you can just run and you can claim your plot of (laughs) land i I, i'm trying to remember the area i think you're entitled to 60 acres or something like that and you literally just had to like put a stake in the ground and that was your land Huh. And you would go and you would like race for the best land. And they would just open things up in little tiny patches like this. Cool. Yeah, it was, I, I don't know, they, they, they had this, just as, as, a, as a country, as a nation, they had this idea of, 
of pushing out of 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 settling of civilizing if you want to use that word all of this all of this area Mm -hmm. shortly after this sort of push into oregon you also got in 1847 you got the mormons started moving into the salt lake valley area it can't be understated how many people that actually moved out into utah but there was it was significant numbers of people okay it was actually it was actually really really uh it, it like it moved a lot of people west and it really helped to solidify sort of this western half of the united states sure Finally, with all of these people that they're just kind of spitting out into Oregon, in 1846, the Oregon Treaty between Britain and the United States established the 49th parallel. They extended it all the way to the Pacific. So basically, Britain said, okay, fine, you can have all the way down to California. Just just leave us the top little bit. Now, technically, the 49th parallel cuts, cuts across Vancouver Island. They let Vancouver Island all go to Britain. But other than that, in terms of continental U.S., the 49th parallel all the way across from the Great Lakes. Sure. That sort of ended that bit of contention between Britain and uh, and the United States and really established the northern border of the U.S. all the way across to the Pacific. One thing I've kind of been neglecting when I'm talking about this stuff is treatment of Aboriginal people. And it's not because it's not important, it's because it's such a big subject that it's sort of hard to figure out how to talk about it in a responsible way. So what I'll do is basically just give you a, an overview of what the United States was doing in terms of policy towards Aboriginal people. It's easier just to kind of treat it as its own mini topic with them. Yeah, sure. So the initial concept was actually that, I, I mean, American settlers had really good experiences with a lot of these these Aboriginal tribes. There were five that they called... And this language makes me so uncomfortable sometimes. There were, they had the five civilized tribes. Now these were larger, I know, these were larger tribes that they felt that they could trust, that they felt had good relations with American colonists, that they could treat on on an equal playing field. Okay. You know, you could trust them to honor agreements. You could look to them for assistance if you needed it. If they asked you for assistance, you should give it to them because they'll return the favor at some point. These were people with whom you could have beneficial relationships. Okay, So these five tribes are the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, Muscogee, Seminole, and Cherokee. Now, a lot of people saw coexistence with these tribes. They figured, we'll figure out a way to make their society work with our society and it'll be great. There's no reason, like this continent is huge. There's no reason we have to be stepping all over each other. Right. Some of them, instead of that, saw a future of sort of benevolent assimilation, if you want to call it that, that naturally the two people would grow closer together, that their societies would blend together, that they're, you know, genetically they would blend together and sort of create a unique American race, if you will. I mean, that's still very much a part of um, discourse about, about countries at this point. Yeah. Um, there's there's another there's another guy who does podcasts called Dan Carlin that uh, that once said about American history that when it comes to racism, racism you kind of have to grade on a curve. I think that's <laughs> I think that's really adept because in this context, the idea of two societies gradually growing together into one you know one hybrid race. Is, is, is a lot better than the alternatives. I mean, sure, if you're looking yeah. at what the Spanish are doing in Mexico at this point in time, it's it's straight-up genocide. There's no there's no beating around the bush. It's it's full-on killing people of, of indigenous heritage. This all started sort of changing as these, these unorganized territories started filling in a little bit. The Louisiana Purchase saw some relief, kind of, because people felt like they had other places they could go where they weren't kind of crowding out current Aboriginal tribes. But the problem was Andrew Jackson. I'm not a fan of Andrew Jackson. I'm just gonna Jackson. go on I'm just gonna go on record. I thought I think the guy was a jerk. Okay. He was very hot headed. He had a huge temper. When we're grading on the curve, he still does real bad on the racism <laughs> end of things. <laughs> he gets a failing grade. Because in eighteen thirty, he 
created something called the Indian Removal Act. That sounds like a really bad thing. And basically, it made it legal to basically take any existing tribes. Hmm, let's back up. The first thing it did was take out any sort of differentiation between the different uh, indigenous tribes in North America. They were all now Indians. Mm-hmm. So that means that, I mean, there were smaller bands that were very warlike. I mean, that's the thing about North America pre pre-europeans i mean it's not a homogenous society by any stretch of the imagination it's incredibly diverse some of them were not friendly to europeans up until now there was a uh, there there was a differentiation in policy between the the civilized tribes and the ones that were more warlike the ones that wouldn't cooperate the ones that were violent andrew jackson removed that then basically he said you know what there's all this new land from the louisiana purchase send them over the Mississippi. There's lots of room for them over there. He basically said, up to the Mississippi, that'll be for white people. Past the Mississippi, we'll just take and we'll move all of the we'll move all of the native people across the Mississippi. Wow. How how did he try to enforce that? It was accepted by Congress. It was ratified. This was US policy. But but so so bands of people would would seek out native tribes and say, um You've got to move west. Essentially what would happen was they made it legal in the United States to force bands as a political entity to sell land to the federal government. Okay. And they were given new land grants across the Mississippi as compensation, as well as monetary compensation. So on one hand, this is like if they're building a freeway and your house happens to be in the way. Yeah. On the other hand, it's like it's 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 a it's a terrible crime against these indigenous people who have been here for thousands of years. Yeah. It's forced relocation. It's 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 super bad stuff. I can't overstate how terrible that was that they did that. If you've ever heard the tr- the term trail of tears, this is where that comes from. This idea that all of these people were forced to leave their homes, given pittances for it. And told that they have to move. The thing is, you know, different different native bands live different ways. You can't again, not a homogenous society. Yeah. The land the land on the other side of the Mississippi is different than you know the Appalachians where they've been living before. It's not as though their traditional ways of living were actually geared towards their new homes necessarily. Not that they weren't capable of sort of adjusting, but I mean that's destroying a lot of heritage right there. Yeah. A lot of heritage. And the the flagrant disrespect that's inherent in all of that is is uh, just such a such a large topic we can't spend too much time on it. Was it controversial at the time in Congress? Somewhat, yes, but there was more This is another case of practicality versus versus idealism and the fact was that Ugh, and, and as much as I hate to say it, the fact was that white settlers were running out of places to live okay. east of the Mississippi, where it was easier to live than basically completely starting anew on wide open prairie. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there, were, there was opposition to this, but it, it went through. It became U.S. policy. Basically, the top two-thirds of the Louisiana ter- Territory was made into Indian Territory, is what they called it. And basically, they were free to live anywhere in there. Anywhere they wanted. How kind. <laughs> the thing was, over the next three decades, they kept organizing that territory and making new states out of it, right? Of course, Portioning yeah. it off, creating new states, adding new legislations, making Indian Territory smaller. Until, basically, it was reduced to Oklahoma. Oklahoma was where they were allowed to live. Then after the Civil War, and we're jumping ahead a little bit here. Sure. After the Civil War, there was something called the Indian Appropriations Act in 1871. It said that no Indian nation or tribe would be recognized as an independent nation, tribe, or power with whom the United States may contract by treaty. We are no longer going to deal with Indian bands. We are no longer recognizing their sovereignty. Wow. They were still able to sell land individually, so they were allowed to hold property, 
but not as a political entity. This is where you start seeing the creation of reserves. This is where you start seeing, I mean, the westward expansion of the United States can't be talked about without talking about the fact that it was as much an invasion as it was an expansion. Yes, they bought that land from France, and yes, France got that land from Spain, and yes, Spain got it from France before that, but this whole time there were Indian bands living there and had been living there for thousands of years. Was there ever, I don't know if this is a crazy question or not, was there ever any kind of a discussion about having uh, a state of the remaining tribes? Yes, absolutely. Um, very early on, like the founding fathers would talk about having a a nation made up of, of aboriginals. Mm -hmm. The thing is, it sort of involved giving them the space to create a state. Which they didn't want to do. Again, the fact that Louisiana, the, the Louisiana Purchase sort of fell into their laps, they saw that as, as they, they owned it. And yeah. I mean, in, in certain ways, yes, they did. But that's a very sort of, I don't want to say selfish, because that's not really it that fair but it's definitely a very Eurocentric way of looking at sure. what had just happened because they saw that as open land they saw that as empty and it wasn't and constantly as these settlers were filling into the Louisiana Purchase you know colonizing the uh, the plains they were constantly fighting with, with Indian bands I mean it's been romanticized in the cowboy movie mm -hmm. those Indians weren't just you know they're not they're not just naturally angry people there isn't you know there, there isn't something inherent in, in in the people who were living here before that makes them you know more violent although they might tell you that because they're not american they haven't adopted american ideals they need mm -hmm. to become enlightened no it's because they're on their they're they're in their home you know and i i i also don't want to forgive some of the atrocities committed by natives against american settlers either i mean it's a very muddy issue you can't really just say one person was right and the other was wrong, but there has to be some acknowledgement that, and, and I mean this isn't this isn't special to the United States either. We we definitely had plenty of problems in Canada. If you look anywhere in South America, Central America, Australia, there are so many places that have had issues with those who were living here first. Yeah, but you sort of can't avoid the fact that there was. Uh, an undeclared war that was waged against native people in this expansion and the creation of these new states in the so-called civilization of these lands. So we got that out of the way. Bit of a downer, I know, but it's 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 important to talk about when we're talking about you know where America comes from because yeah. it sort of comes back as well to that idea of idealism versus practicality. For sure, you can't just spread your your you know enlightened Republican ideals without kind of elbowing some people out of the way. And unfortunately, the, the Native people took the brunt of that. I have a question, if I can. Mm -hmm. um, when, these, when these new states were being organized and established, yep. were those states allowed, were, were, were citizens allowed to own slaves in those new states? Depended on the state. Okay. We'll get a little bit more into that a little bit later, because the thing about the Louisiana Purchase is the majority of that landmass is northern, mm -hmm. and the thing about owning slaves is that it works best in a plantation system, and plantation systems work best in the south, just due to climate and a couple of other factors. So it wasn't really an issue at the at the time. Uh, you know, if we go back to sort of the Oregon Territory and to the Louisiana Purchase, they they didn't become huge issues yes the state of louisiana itself ended up being a slave state but i mean you also added a number of states that weren't mm. and there was at, at, the, at the point in time that we're talking about with oregon basically states were allowed to organize that as they wanted okay if that makes sense yeah so that's that's sort of where we are with uh with slave owning so once the oregon territory is settled Basically, that constitutes most of what, or, or a fairly large chunk of what constitutes the continental U.S. at this point. The chunk that's missing is sort of that whole Southwest. Right. Problem was that Spain was still in there. 
However, we're going to have to leave that topic until next time. All right. By the time the Oregon Territory was incorporated into the Union in 1846, the United States had grown from its original colonies to span the continent in a little over 60 years with little opposition. However, internal rifts were growing over the issue of slavery, and the southwest border was spanned by the newly independent and very imposing Mexico at its largest geographical size. Next time on Nietzsche 101, we'll delve into how the rapidly growing United States dealt with both of these challenges. That episode will be up on August 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.